It's time to think about the Bible like you never have before. This is Christian Questions. This podcast centers on godly principles, family values, and honest dialogue in a politically free zone. After the podcast, check out our other episodes, all our Bible study resources, videos, download the CQ app, and more at ChristianQuestions.com. Today's topic is, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? Coming up in this episode... Ideally, love, marriage, and communication should all fit together and create a beautiful mosaic of happily ever after. But often they don't. Much of our marital discontent and disappointment can be traced back to how we communicate with each other. A clear-cut problem, but is there a clear-cut fix? Now, here's Rick and Jonathan. Welcome, everyone. I'm Rick. I'm joined by Jonathan, my co-host for over 20 years. Thankful to be here. Jonathan, what's our theme scripture for today's episode? 1 Corinthians 13, 4. Love is patient, love is kind, and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. When it comes down to understanding your marriage relationship, there may not be a more revealing question to ask than, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? It's funny Well, actually, it's sad. We make a life-altering decision to marry, and the passion behind it is clear and solid. We see it as a forever passion, and time passes, and this passionate decision can become a commonplace part of life, one one that we don't give much thought to. Then, kind of like putting on your most comfortable pair of shoes or sitting in your favorite chair, your marriage becomes just another element of life that you absentmindedly rely upon to provide you comfort. As you talk to your spouse, your words, perhaps subtly at first, begin to reflect reaffirming your own comfort instead of being interested in their experience. So sad and too often so true. Jonathan, as we get started, our title question, What Do I Say When I Talk to My Spouse, was actually inspired by the book, What to Say When You Talk to Yourself by Shad Helmstetter. I first read this book over 30 years ago, and it helped me understand how to better communicate with others by better understanding how we talk to ourselves. And folks, make no mistake, today it's about communicating. It's about putting things in order so we can be clear with our spouses and lift our marriage to higher levels. We have several principles of caring and committed communication. And usually, Jonathan, these are a conclusion, but right now, this is an introduction. What's our first principle? I communicate with my spouse through words, actions, innuendo, and what I choose to focus on as important. These communications reveal the condition of my own heart. How am I looking by just acknowledging these things? So we communicate with our spouses in all kinds of different ways, and we know what they are. The question we have to ask ourselves, and this is really a mirror podcast. You know, Jonathan, we talk about that frequently. What do I look like when I do my communicating? How am I looking when I'm examining these things? And and this is what we're going to be delving into as we go through uh, today's podcast. The principles of marriage are clearly defined by the very first marriage in Scripture. After God created Eve from Adam, here's what Adam said. Here's his response in Genesis chapter 2, verses 23 to 25. And this is from the King James Version. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. So the conclusion of the matter reveals the profound principle of marriage. We have the creation, and he says, okay, she's taken out of me, and now 
Here is the conclusion, verses 24 and 25. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. And Rick, that word for cleave means cling or adhere, figuratively to catch by pursuit. So Rick, the figurative example means when someone pursues you, they don't stop until they catch you. So applying that to spouses, we should have a never-ending effort in a positive way to stay close as one. And, and, you know, and, and that's such an important thing. That's why that simple phrase, leave his father and mother and cleave or cling unto his wife, is such a powerful phrase because that one little word puts it all in perspective. You need to be striving daily to be close. This cleaving or clinging indicates unrelenting attachment, like you just said. Let's just look at one other use of how this word is used, and th- this, this tells a lot. Joshua chapter 22, verse 5. And this is also in the King James Version. But take diligent heed to do the commandment and the law, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, charged you to love the Lord your God and to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cleave unto him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So in this verse, cleaving or clinging means clinging to God. So to cleave or to cling is to powerfully and intentionally hold on to. We are to cleave or to cling to God, which means we powerfully and intentionally follow his ways. Now, Jehovah God instructed men to powerfully and intentionally be joined to their wives, so much so that the two become one. That's what this clinging is about. The way we strive to be close to God We have to have that same kind of thing in relation to our own spouses. So again, the question, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? Let's go back to the principles of caring and committed communication. Jonathan, what's next? Does my daily life communicate to my spouse and to everyone else this oneness that the simple message of cleave unto his wife in Genesis indicates? Others should be able to see our oneness in our marriages. Why? Because the problem is that in private, someone may act one way, and in public, they may act another. For example, flirting with someone other than their spouse. This exposes an improper heart commitment. If people see we're committed to our marriage, they will leave us alone. (laughs) Well, yeah, they will, especially if they see it on the outside not something that's hidden away on the inside. And, you know, flirting, flirting is a thoughtless kind of a thing. And you think, well, what's the harm? There's plenty of harm because it sets your mind, it sets your affections, it sets your emotions in a wrong direction. That is not clinging to your spouse. That's, That's counterintuitive to that. And, Jonathan, as a result of these kinds of things, and we'll expand on this as we go, many marriages end in divorce and countless more are not happy. So what happens to cause such sadness, such disconnection, and such failure? Well, these are the many reasons why. Life happens. Jobs happen. Kids happen. Responsibilities happen. Separate interests happen. Boredom happens. Unfulfilled expectations happen. Sickness happens. Trauma and tragedy happens. Disillusionment happens. 
jealousy happens. Bad decisions happen. Oh, thanks for all that. That just got me all excited and cheered up, you know. And look, that's a, that's a long list. That's not everything. Life gets in the way of our ideals. And so we need to be set in our own minds to work forward toward those ideals and not lose them in spite of, Jonathan, all the things you mentioned and the several others that you didn't. So mm-hmm. you got this long list. Everything happens. As Christians, what do we need to do to combat such a devastating list? How do we, how do we combat it? Well, let's start by looking at what cleaving or clinging to your spouse is not. Okay, we're going to start with this is not the way to go about things. This, what we're going to describe, this kind of love we're going to describe is the kind of love that most always takes center stage in our world now when we think about love and relationships. The Greek word that we're looking at is the word eros. So Jonathan, give us a sense of eros as a Greek word. Well, eros is the Greek word for sensual or romantic love. The term originated from the mythological Greek god of love, sexual desire, physical attraction, and physical love, Eros, whose Roman counterpart was Cupid. So Eros, the, the word erotic comes from the word Eros. And Eros, this sensuality, is not inherently bad. And we want to be, be clear. It, it's not inherently bad, but but it can easily create unrealistic expectations, which can lead to broken hearts, which can lead to marriage-destroying actions. So while it's not inherently bad, it can certainly end up causing mass destruction in terms of marriage. The word eros is not in the Bible, and I think there's no accident for it not being in the Bible. However, the effects of eros, of sensuality, abound both for good and for evil in several scriptures. We're just going to touch on two scriptures to make the point. Jonathan, what's the first one? It's a Song of Solomon, of chapter 1, verse 2. May he kiss me with the kisses of his mouth, for your love is better than wine. Okay, there is, that's a sensual scripture. And, and you know, you, you look at that and you, and you get a sense of this is a very, very physical, intimate moment. And again, in the right environment, that's a good thing. But in the wrong environment, it's utterly, completely, totally destructive. And let's look at the other side, the wrong environment. Another example, and with this scripture, we're going to leave out the more graphic details. So another example of the good and evil of eros, of sensuality, is shown to us in Proverbs 5, verses 18 through 20. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. Be exhilarated always with her love. For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress? Well, Rick, as Christians, um, our spouses, we need to have our desire be met at home and no place else. And we have our mind on no one else but our spouse. And, and that's something that is in this world is easier said than done. We have to be focused. And even in back in biblical times, the same problem occurred. The same issues arose. And throughout the Bible, you see these kinds of issues arise. So, arise. so this is nothing unusual. And we just need to understand that when we are looking to live a successful Christian marriage, we need to be aware 
and be above so many different things. So eros, this, this Greek word, is not the appropriate basis for a Christian marriage. It can, though, and should be a continually developing byproduct of a solid relationship that is based on commitment between you and your spouse. So in relation to this, in relation to looking at this piece, the question again, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? What is my communication like in relation to these kinds of things when I talk to my spouse? Jonathan, what's our next principle of caring and committed communication? Do I have a healthy enough level of communication with my spouse that affords communicating our sensual and romantic desires between us? Am I willing to build up to that communication level if it is not there? And here's the problem, Rick. It's too easy to look because there's so much to see. Let me repeat that. The problem is it's too easy to look because there's so much to see. So we need to have our blinders on, if you will, and be focused on only those things that are appropriate to work on building a relationship, a marriage that is God-honoring and happy at the same time. And yes, you can have both of those things at the same time. So here's the thing. Sometimes the greatest hope is found in the simplest things. Realize what it means to cling to your spouse and then do it. Thus far, we have talked about the need for spouses to fully communicate. So how do we actually do that? As we focus on spousal communication, there are two basic aspects we need to key in on to help us identify the quality of our efforts. First is the what of our words or actions. What is our focus? What's our intention? Second is the how. How are we delivering the point? Is it, is it through anger or impatience or exasperation or, or resignation? Or is it through love and kindness and grace and concern? So we've got the what and the how. And so, Jonathan, to introduce this, th- th- this is an important basis for us to understand this. Folks, to communicate what you feel is important. To communicate was, what is important is vital. And to do one without the other is foolish. So what we feel is important, but what is important is something different. And we're going to expand on that now. We need to go through this very, very carefully. To communicate what we feel is important, to communicate what is important is vital. Both have to be done together. So Jonathan, let's begin with communicating what we feel. Well, first, the what of our communication. All right. Am I angry or fed up or just ready to give up on something regarding my spouse? And the big question is, ah, it's, bur- it's burning inside of me. Should I tell them? Well, wait, Rick, uh, what do you mean? They can't read your mind? <laughs> no. <laughs> Rick, yes, of course, Rick, you should tell them. And someone once said, when you and your spouse are not speaking to each other, the devil is speaking to both of you. Oh, that is, that is a very powerful statement. So we need to be really clear that communication between us, especially when we are miffed or angry about something, is so, so, so important. So again, we're looking at the what of our communication. Communicating these things, these difficult things, is best done using scriptural principles. And Jonathan, it never ceases to amaze me how there is a scriptural principle principle for everything in our lives. 
And so let's take a look at the scriptural principles for communicating with our spouse here. Ephesians 4, 25 to 27. Therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. See, that, there's some power, power in that scripture. Tell your spouse what's on your mind. They need to know, and you need them to know. And what this scripture is saying is, do it sooner rather than later. Well, Rick, this brings up the concept of peacemaking or peacekeeping. Now, we address the differences between peacemaking and peacekeeping in episode 1025, Should We Be Peacemakers? We discuss the transformative value of peacemaking in daily life. Go to ChristianQuestions.com or the CQ app and enter the episode 1025 into the search bar. And, you know, peacekeeping is something that spouses often do. They have a disagreement, and just to keep the peace, okay, you can think your way, I can think mine, and we're just going to let it be. I mean, how many times have we done that? And it becomes habitual. The difference with peacemaking is it breaks down the barriers and figures out why and comes to a higher level of communication and therefore a stronger bond. We need to be peacemakers. It's harder work, but just peacekeeping generally leads to discontent. Peacemaking leads to breakthroughs and a stronger bond. Think about that. So, Jonathan, what's next? We've, we've talked about the what of our communication. Well, second, the how of our communication. Too often, our communications to our spouses are driven by exasperation and resignation and other negative emotions, as we mentioned above. With all of this going on, we are easily positioned to damage and not repair our relationship. We need scriptural guidance. We always need scriptural guidance. There's never a day in your life where you don't need scriptural guidance. So let's go back to Ephesians chapter 4. Let's go to verse 29. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Oh, think about that. So that it will give grace to those who hear. Love, selfless love, and we're going to expand that later on is what provokes the ability to live and speak according to this scripture. Jonathan, there's three basic points here. No unwholesome, rotten, or putrefied words, but words of edification, meaning architecture, confirmation. It's amazing the word for unwholesome. It really literally means rotten and putrefied. I mean, we have to use good, powerful, upbuilding words, even when we're upset. Speak words that are valuable according to the need of the moment. Valuable words, not necessarily ranting, but valuable words. And the last point, the end result of our words should be grace to the hearer, a challenge that you are mad when yeah. you are mad. Yeah, yeah. So, so when you're angry, it's like, okay, you expect me to speak with grace? I mean, I'm, my face is red, I'm so upset, my blood pressure is through the roof. How can I speak with grace? Let's look at this, because there is a way, but it requires looking in the mirror. All right? So, Jonathan, l l let's give an example. Instead of, you make me so mad. Well, Rick, calm down. <laughs> Instead, try, I felt myself getting mad when I saw or heard you. Okay. All right. All right. Now, instead of, you always, or you never. 
Easy, Rick. <laughs> Instead, try. I find myself getting irritated when I see you do. Okay. So what's the difference? And, you know, a lot of us are going to listen to that and say, oh, come on. You're not expressing yourself in, the, in, in, in your answer to me, Jonathan. But here's, folks, pay close attention. Here's the difference. In your examples, Jonathan, your, your, your try it this way, what we're doing is we want to own our own volatile reaction instead of blaming our spouse. After all, you have the choice as to whether you react with severity or you react with grace. And let's face that fact, and that is a fact. They can say something, and it can, it, can, it, can, it can push your buttons, it can make you all upset, but you ultimately have a choice as to how you respond. So instead of putting it on them, put it on you. That's the way to answer with grace. Because folks, like it or not, that is under your control and therefore can be your fault. Let's go back to Ephesians 4. Again, let's go now down to verses 31 and 32 for further scriptural guidance on how to communicate. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. It's great admonition to us dealing with other Christians. Let's deal with our spouses with the same kind of grace. Be kind, tenderhearted, forgiving. And yes, okay, if you're mad, you, you state it, but you take the responsibility for the anger instead of making it their responsibility. So again, we're looking at this, we're looking at the difficulties and asking the question. So what do I say when I talk to my spouse when I might be angry or upset or at the end of my rope? Jonathan, what's our next principle of caring and committed communication? The clear scriptural principles of respect for members of the body of Christ must translate to respecting my spouse, whether I see them right or wrong in any given matter. So what we apply to the body of Christ, we have to apply to our spouses. This is such an important basis for actually communicating. So let's con continue uh, with communicating with what's important. We talked about the what of our communication and, and, and the how of our communication. And now let's look at what's the most important thing. Well, newsflash, what we feel is not the most important thing. The most important thing is just how much our spouse means to us. And that is a newsflash. That's a, what? I'm mad. The most important thing is how mad I am. No. The most important thing is your marriage relationship. And you have to put your anger in the context of that. What does all of that mean? To manage how we speak to our spouses, we need to be reminded of our personal responsibilities within this sacred covenant of our Christian marriage. So let's look at the next chapter of Ephesians that talks about marriage very specifically. We're just going to briefly touch on these verses. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 21 to 23. And be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the Savior of the body. And, you know, you look at those verses, and if you look at them independently outside of all other verses, you're like, whoa, that's not very good. That's, that's not treating women right. Uh, it's a recipe for unfair treatment, rebellion, and even lawsuits. Well, folks, calm. Be calm. Let's finish the context. Let's put this all in order, because there's a beautiful lesson here in terms of communication. 
husbands, okay, that's, the, that's what the wives are instructed to do. Be subject to your husband as to the Lord, and we're all supposed to be subject to the Lord in fear of Christ. That's what the first verse is said. Husbands now are clearly taught to love their wives as a Christian responsibility. And you think, oh, okay, so it's your responsibility to love them? Yes, it is. Let's look at this. Ephesians 5, 20, uh, 25, 28, 29, and 31. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So husbands ought also to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. Well, Rick, the key to truly valuing your spouse is in the concept of cherishing. And Thayer says that cherishing means to cherish with the tender love, to foster with tender care. So in these verses, we're given the sense that, you know, no one uh, hates his body, but takes good care of it. I mean, if something hurts, you coddle it, you wrap it, you, you, you rub it, you take care of it, you cherish your body, you need to do that to your spouse as well. Foster with tender care. That's what we're instructed to do here. Well, you know, Rick, in Ephesians, there are six points made. It's interesting, only one is about women. What's up with that? Yeah, well, men are dense. <laughs> okay, I said it. <laughs> Sometimes we don't get it the first, second, third, or fourth time. We need an extra. And so let, let, well, let's go through these bullet points from what these scriptures are teaching us. First, the first bullet point about women, the, what they're instructed to do. Women in, in a marriage, love and be subject. Second point, men, love and give yourself up for her. It's interesting. Third point, men, love and care for her as you would your own body. Fourth point, men, your love for her becomes your way of self-preservation. That's powerful. Fifth point, men, cherish your wife. And sixth, last point, men, leave all other ties for her sake. So when you look at these scriptures and you say, women, be subject to your husbands, then you see all of the things the husband's supposed to do. That's what you want to be subject to. Someone who has you so clearly in their sights as one to love and honor and cherish and protect and be with. That's, that is what a Christian marriage ought to look like. So especially for husbands, the importance of their wives cannot be stated enough. Let's go to another set of scriptures that further describes what this relationship should look like. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7. And this is in the King James Version. Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Well, honor means esteem, especially of the highest degree, and the weaker means strengthless. Okay, so honor, esteem, especially of the highest degree, your wife as unto a strengthless vessel. Now, are we saying women are strengthless? No. Follow through. Let's see what the scripture is really teaching us. It's helping us to understand we need to give great esteem to our wives as we would to something of great value, but that's fragile. Protect, honor, and respect her above all others. Cherish her. That's the point. 
And you got to ask yourself, well, why such a high standard? Why such a, 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 a big thing about just as though she were, she were very, very, very tender and fragile? It's because we so easily forget. That's why you need such a high standard, because it's too easy to forget. So when you have something you have to really strive for, it stays more clearly in your mind. So this, this principle of honoring those who are not out front, you know, because essentially it's showing that the, the man being out front, and again, don't panic here, uh, but this, the principle shows within the body of Christ the exact same honoring of those that seem to be of lesser, that seem to be of lesser value. This is awesome. Let's listen to this, 1 Corinthians 12, 21 to 23. And this is from the American Standard Version. Nay, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be more feeble are necessary. And those parts of the body which we think be less honorable, upon these we bestow more abundant honor, and our uncomely parts have more abundant comeliness. Well, Rick, if we're supposed to honor the body members in Christ, why wouldn't we honor the one we covenanted to love. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, you, you're right. It, it, it actually nails it down. And it uses the same words, which seem to be more feeble. That's the word for weaker. And it's saying within the body, there are those that maybe are not out front, but it says they are the most honorable. And it says they need to be honored. Same word as, as in the previous Peter scripture. So we treat the members of the body of Christ in their different roles with incredible honor and respect. And this is a model for treating our spouses. Those who are not out front in the body are given greater honor. Never forget that. It's the same with marriage. That's what the looking at the most important thing sums up to be. So again, the question, what do I say when I talk to my spouse when I have all of these things in my mind with the difficulties of life and also the things that the scriptures have just taught us. So what's our next principle of caring and uh, committed communication? Honestly and consciously restating the extraordinary value of my spouse in my life is a vital element of my expression, expressing my emotions and state of mind when communicating with them. They need to hear of their value, and I need to be reminded of it. That's the most important thing. So when we're angry angry and frustrated and upset, they need to hear their value. I need to be reminded of it, and that way we can help keep things in the perspective that the Scriptures teach us to keep them. So here's, you know, as we look at this, applying scriptural principles completely refocuses how we handle our spousal challenges. So let's get to work. Strong communication in marriage is deeply important and often difficult. How do we keep it a priority? This ends up being one of the key questions that we can ask. It's one thing to recognize a lack of good communication, and it's another thing to do something positive about it. It's a not yet another thing to keep doing the right things on a regular basis to keep spousal conversations vibrant, no matter how busy or how mundane life may become. So it's great to think about doing the right thing, and it's great to start, but we need to maintain. We need to keep it going. So we've been asking the question, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? Now, let's reverse things a little bit as we continue exploring the sanctity of our spousal communication. So Jonathan, instead of asking, what's our initial question? 
What do I say when I talk to my spouse? Why don't we change it up and now ask? What do I think when I listen to my spouse? Oh, see, now that gets a, that, that, that digs a little deeper in a whole different way now, doesn't it? It does. If we pay attention to this new question, what do I think when I listen to my spouse? Our thoughts can be the obvious storytellers of what we're really experiencing. If our thoughts toward our spouse are not positive and driven by God's grace, we need to acknowledge this and be reminded of the ways to draw those thoughts back in line with Christian behavior. Rick, this reminds me of a Sila moment. Remember, Sila means pause and consider. Well, where's our mind when we're asked a question from our spouse? Are we really pausing and giving them our attention? In the world we live in, there are so many distractions. Do we put our phone down or turn off the TV when our spouse is speaking? You know, that's such an important point. And to, 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 to stop working, to stop playing with the kids, to stop watching the game, to stop whatever it is you're doing is such, such a big, big thing. And Jonathan, you know, I, I work a lot, you know, in terms of preparing for Christian questions and all. And, and there are often times where I'm, I'm sitting in the, in the podcast room, which is kind of our, the, the office, and I'm, I'm working on, on a podcast, and, and, and my wife, Trish, will come in, you know, to, to say something, to share something with me. And usually it, I'm in the middle of something. And oftentimes it's like, okay, hun, just hold on. Let me just finish writing this thought so I don't forget it. And I type it out, and then I stop, and I turn, and now I can listen. It's not, sure, tell me what you're thinking as I continue to type, because it's way too important to actually, actually listen. So this is where we want to be here. So how do we get there? How do we understand this about listening? Well, let's remember, there are two basic kinds of love that scripturally apply to marriage. It's very possible to have one kind of love without the other, and also possible to lose sight of both kinds. What are we talking about? So, Jonathan, where do we start here? Well, the first kind of love is a strong marriage is built upon mutual respect. Okay, what does that mean? This includes an ever-growing ability to take that which we tolerate and transform it into that which we embrace. Think about that. Take that which we tolerate and transform it into that which we embrace. And and Jonathan, without getting deeply into the Greek, there are three basic Greek words that we're focusing on here. Give us a a sense of what those three words mean. Well, the affection between spouses, parents to children, and children to parents, this level is the most basic and instinctive. In other words, natural family love. And that's a scriptural concept, to have natural family love within our family and also with brotherhood. Okay, just want to add that. That's a side, side note for another, another topic. Uh, but the idea is this natural family love, this give and take, this, this fun, the excitement, the sharing, the regular through the mundane chores and difficulties of life. That should be ever present. This is important. This is a kind of love we need. Titus chapter 2 verses 4 and 5 is showing us the necessity of putting this in place. This comes from the New King James Version. That they may admonish the younger women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. So when it says to love their husbands, that's one Greek word, and then a slightly different Greek word, to love their children. Family love. 
So what what these verses in Titus are saying is they're, they're not saying that these things are 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 not there. They're saying um, we're reminding you make sure you don't lose sight of these things because they are our Christian responsibility to be able to work with. These things need to be central and continuous. This family love keeps the spousal connection flowing on an emotional give-and-take basis. And folks, it is so important to feed the emotional give-and-take basis. I take care of you, you take care of me, we take care of each other, I listen to you, and you can listen to me. It's, it's this give-and-take. This is the kind of love that's being described here. So with this kind of love in mind, here's the question, and you know what's coming. Put up the mirror. What do I think when I listen to my spouse based on this kind of love that we just spoke about, this family love? So what's the next principle of caring and committed communication? Truly listening to my spouse comes far more naturally when I am centered in my affectionate love for them. If my listening is weak or disinterested, it is a sign of waning affection. The sooner I realize and respond to this development, the sooner I can return to being the cherishing spouse I am called to be. So ask ourselves the question, when your spouse wants to bring something to you to talk to you about this, that, or the other thing. How am I responding? Am I responding in a kind of half-hearted way? Because if I'm, if I'm responding in a half-hearted way, what I'm going to get is half-hearted communication. And half-hearted plus half-hearted means no-hearted. Okay? It, it goes exactly the wrong way. Am I going down that road? And if so, let me think about that. Let me say, wait, wait, wait. Some, something's off what do I need to do? I need to put things back where it belongs. Now, sometimes you don't feel it, you know, and, and, and that's the problem. Sometimes we don't feel this, this first kind of love. What are we going to do there? Where do we go from here, Jonathan? Well, the second kind of love, a strong marriage is built upon putting your spouse first. Okay, now we've been saying that, so why is this a little different? Well, loving them enough to not be concerned, and listen carefully to this, Loving them enough to not be concerned with what you get in return is a foundation of true marital connection and growth. To not be concerned with what you get in return. And Jonathan, this kind of love, we've talked about these Greek words many times on many podcasts. What are the words and and, and what's the basic meaning? Well, agape love means affection or benevolence. It's like a selfless love, giving without expecting in return. Yeah, and you know, and, and when, when you think of a benevolent ruler who is being very generous to those who are basically have not, that benevolent ruler is not going to ever get anything back, but they give anyway. This is the picture of God, his benevolent, benevolent rulership over us and presenting Jesus as the sacrifice so that we have an opportunity for life. There's, a, there's just a giving without a thought of, 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 being, uh, of receiving. And this is way, the way Jesus loved. He gave, and it didn't concern him what he got back. And yet, he was teaching others to live up to the same. Let's, we're going to look at two examples of this kind of benevolent love. And first is John 15, 12. This is Jesus near the end of his way, just the night before his crucifixion, teaching his disciples some of the most important things. This is my commandment, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. I, it's not a suggestion. This is my commandment. 
love in the way you have seen me love you. Love each other that way. He had washed their feet not too long before he said this. So you have this sense of giving without worrying about receiving. Ephesians 5.25, again, we touched on this earlier, but one more time in terms of this kind of selfless love. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. So a husband should love his wife in one way to give without worrying about getting back because that's what the scriptures tell us. This is that higher kind of love. And the original marriage proclamation absolutely implies this selfless kind of love. And let's go back to that very quickly, Jonathan, Genesis 2, 24. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined, or cling or adhere, to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that clinging to doesn't have conditions on it, does it? No. It, it doesn't say cling to your wife when you guys are really clicking and, and, and communication is good and life is rolling along. It says that's what you do no matter what. And so, and that's why marriage is, is a lifelong commitment. It doesn't matter what the circumstances, you still do that, even if nothing is coming back to you. This is harder to, 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 to grasp because our relationship with our spouse is the most common thing in our lives. And that's the problem. It becomes too common instead of becoming something that we extraordinarily strive for. So when we look at the next principle of caring and committed communication, let's think of it in terms of this kind of selfless love. When I find myself having personal challenges with being able to readily access the affectionate love I should have in listening to my spouse, I need further steps. I must claim the love that Jesus showed me a love that gave without needing anything in return and applying it to my spouse as I intentionally cling to them through my personal doubts. Well, if we don't have the affection for our spouse at the moment, we should ask ourselves, does Jesus love me no matter what? We need to love our spouse that way and work on getting that affection back in our relationship. Don't give up, go up live higher like Jesus. And, and that's such a great way to describe this. If I don't feel it, let me then do what Jesus did for me. Because Jesus never stops loving us, and we can sin, and we can ask forgiveness, and he still loves us the same. And that's such a beautiful thing. That's we, something we need to apply to our spouses regularly. So put that in place. If you don't feel it, then do what Jesus does. Of course, always do what Jesus does. You know what I mean. But, you know, that way you have the two kinds of love working for you. So when we struggle to communicate, how often do we just stop and think about the advantages, the opportunities, and the privileges we have because we have our spouses? You know, oftentimes we don't go there. But pause a moment, another Sila moment, Jonathan, if you will, right here, as we look at Ecclesiastes 4, 9 to 12. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. For if either of them falls, the one will lift up his companion. But woe to the one who falls when there is not another to lift him up. Furthermore, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? And if one can overpower him who is alone, two can resist him. 
a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart. And when you get that idea that a cord of three strands is not quickly torn apart, you've got you and you've got your spouse and you've got, you've got the covenant you made before God Almighty. You've got this powerful, powerful binding thing that makes that, 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 uh, that cord of three strands so strong. When we think of our spouses, we ought to think of the godly grace that binds us together. Think of the power of the godly grace that binds us together. What an advantage you have in life because of that. Don't put those things aside. Put them in the forefront of your mind. To realize there are several ways we, to love our spouses, to realize there are several paths to reconcile our differences. What happens when we get to a point where we just don't want to listen and just feel like quitting? When we don't feel loved, it's easy to resign, and that brings up thoughts of retreat. We can easily fall into the thought pattern of, ah, there's no hope, or biggest mistake of my life, or what did I do to deserve this? Retreating triggers a shutting down of the heart, which makes efforts a thing of the past. This is a common worldly state of being. And so Jonathan, this retreating and this, this resigning and retreating, we have to be amazingly careful of. But for the committed Christian, those things should be a rarity. They should be, but sometimes, sometimes they show their ugly face. So what do we do? Well, let's understand from, from the big picture of how the scriptures describe the importance of the connection of family love. Actually, a lack of family love is cited as a sign of the depth of sin, and it's also cited as a sign of the end of the times. Let's look at it in Romans chapter 1. At first, this will be the first application, a sign of the depth of sin. Romans chapter 1, verses 28 and 31. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. Well, Rick, the word for unloving means lacking love of family. Think about that for a moment. Back in the Apostle Paul's day, he's writing and he's observing the world around him and he's observing the corruption that was in the world at that time. And he's saying one of the major symptoms of the depth of this corruption is a lack of love of family. That's a huge thing. And to look at that and say, wow, it even existed back then, that's a warning sign that we are on the wrong track. We will not find the goodness of our marriage if we fall into that. And it was back in that day. Now, let's go further. Let's look at it from a prophetic standpoint. The prophetic application comes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, uh, verses 1 and 2. But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal. Yeah, we also did quote part of verse 3 there as well. But unloving, same thing, Jonathan, same word, lacking love of family. So as we look around, we can easily see the many ways recent generations have subtly fulfilled this prophetic statement. I mean, think about it. We're seeing this lack of love of family put out everywhere in the world around us right now. 
Well, the question is, am I bending to the pressures of this world as I relate to my spouse? So the question is, am I part of the fulfillment of this prophecy? And if I am, that's terrible. I, I, you, you don't want to be doing that here. We, we can't be going down that road if we are given so much to rise above and stand for something that's higher and stronger and so much better. Just because I feel this way or that doesn't give me permission to act this way or that. We cannot resign or retreat when it comes to our efforts to hear and communicate with our spouse. So, again, just like we talked about earlier, what I feel, sure, it has an importance, but it is not the most important thing in the marriage situation, in the marriage environment, in the marriage covenant. The most important thing is to honor my spouse. And how do I do that? I do that with patience and God's grace, even if I feel this way or that. I don't have permission to be dishonorable. I don't. I just don't, and we can't go there. Jesus consistently reminded us of the basic principles of the most important things. Now, these are the general teachings of Jesus. They all apply to our general lives as well as to our married lives. If you're at odds with your spouse, consider this, Matthew 5, 43 and 44. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Well, Rick, if we aren't developing the Christian quality of loving our enemies, why wouldn't we work on loving our spouse when we're at odds? And, and you know, the love here is that selfless, benevolent kind of love because maybe you don't feel it. But, I mean, and who feels that really family love for their enemies. You don't feel that family love, but you are willing to love them as Jesus loved them because he died for them. So if we are supposed to be working on loving our enemies, you're right. Then why can't we be working on loving our spouses? They are so much more close to us. We need to, and if you don't feel it, you rise above it and you do what Jesus did. Let's keep going. Another general principle that Jesus spoke about, especially in parables, is diligently taking care of those things that are entrusted to you. And this we'll find in Luke chapter 16, verse 10. He who is faithful in a very little thing is faithful also in much, and he who is unrighteous in a little thing is unrighteous also in much. Well, we have been entrusted with our marriage covenant God has given us. How are we doing? Are we being faithful to it in every degree? We've heard the phrase, well, at least I'm not cheating on her. Is that how we're supposed to describe our faithfulness? Man, if we are starting there, (laughs) we know we've got troubles. And folks, if you are starting there and that's kind of where you're going to, you need to find a, a fellow Christian who's got their feet firmly on the ground and talk to them because this is serious stuff. We don't want to go with, well, at least I'm not. The moment we go down that road, we have entered the realm of rationalization, and that just leads to destruction, it leads to discontent, and it leads to the disquiet of the home life. There's just an incredible disquiet that happens, and it's so hard to recover from. So you're right. We are entrusted with the covenant. What are we doing with it? So let, let, let's go further. Let's look at a few more scriptures. Uh, again, general Christian scriptures. And for today, 
for today, these scriptures that we're going to be read. Let's look at these next scriptures as though they were designed primarily as a marriage guide. You're picking up a Christian guide to marriage, and these scriptures are in that, okay? Treat your spouse at least with the same love, compassion, and understanding with which we treat the brotherhood. Let's start with chapter, uh, 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And this is from the New King James Version. Finally, all of you, be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. Well, Rick, how will I be judged by God if I haven't taken care of my spouse? And Jonathan, that's a piercing question that we as Christians need to be willing to ask ourselves. If we're having issues and we're angry all the time, or angry a lot of the time, and not communicating a lot of the time, we have to ask ourselves that particular question. Because in the scripture it says, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. And what are you supposed to do? Not return evil for evil. Be tender-hearted. Be courteous. Be of one mind. Have compassion. Love as brothers. Again, that's that brotherly family kind of love. So there's so much here that says there's much on the line. And folks, realize that as we talk about marriage and we talk about communication, it's not just so you can have a, a happy married, married life. It is so you can have a fruitful Christian life. That's the other part of this. That's the big part of this. A good, appropriate treatment of our spouses gives us a much more fruitful Christian life. Let's go to our next scripture in our quote-unquote marriage guide from the Bible, Philippians chapter 2, verses 2 to 4. Make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing from selfish or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Now, we all know that this is a scripture that's talking about the treatment of other, other others of the brotherhood. But think right. about this. Regard one another, again, you and your spouse, as more important than yourselves. I promise you, if you truly regard your spouse as more important than you are, your anger and your frustration and your, your feeling a lack of being understood is going to take on a different light because you're going to approach it with grace and honor first, just like we're supposed to with the brotherhood. So sometimes it doesn't go well back and forth between us. But again, the question now, what do I think when I listen to my spouse, what's going through my head and what should be going through my head? And how much should I be pausing and considering and listening and honoring as I go through these things based on these scriptures? So our next principle of caring and committed communication. I must realize that any issues I have with my spouse can easily get swept under the rug and ignored. When I feel like doing this, let me instead love selflessly, as Jesus taught me to love my enemies. Let me extend myself, as I am instructed to, with the brotherhood, realizing my spouse's importance is beyond all of these other things. We have covenanted to be with our spouse for our whole life, and that means they are the most important human being to us. It just does. 
That's what the covenant is. Let's live it. Let's live it. Let's look at an example, because Jonathan, there's nothing like a great example to get us inspired. An example of a great marriage that, let's, so the, the, the example we're going to look at is going to show us what it looks like, looks like to co-labor along with your spouse as you serve the Lord. And Jonathan, every time I read about this example, it makes me smile on the inside and smile on the outside. So we're going to take a look at Acts chapter 18, verses 1 to 3, and introduce this couple who serves the Lord together. In Corinth, Paul found a Jew named Aquila, having recently come from Italy, and his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. He came to them, and because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them, for by trade they were tent makers. So you have Aquila and Priscilla. They were essentially chased out of, uh, of, of Jerusalem, and they had to go... Um, Oh, I'm sorry, the Jews had to, had to leave Rome, rather. And so the Apostle Paul stays with them, and he, he co-labors with them. They, they, they're in the same trade. And then they live, Paul lives in their house with them. They literally work together, and they work at preaching the gospel together. And then they went to Ephesus with the Apostle Paul. So you see this great attachment of these two to the Apostle Paul. So go forward in, in their experience a little bit. When Apollos the gifted communicator came to Christianity, he taught, and he was eloquent in his teaching, but he was not fully versed in all Christian doctrine. So who are the ones that go and help him out? Well, let's look at Acts 18, 25 to 26. This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he was speaking and teaching accurately the things concerning Jesus, being acquainted only with the baptism of John. But when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So the two of them together take this wonderful orator aside who is preaching the gospel in such a wonderful way, and they say, look, there's some things that you need to, to add to your understanding. They took him aside with quietness and humility and taught the great teacher truth they, so he could be a better teacher. Priscilla and Aquila continue to, to do things in Scripture. They show up again in Romans 16, verses 3 to 5. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks. Also, greet the church that is in their house. The apostle says, they risked their lives for the sake of me. And he says, also greet the church that's in their house. So they were hospitable. They had the brotherhood come to them and worship with them. They were leaders, and they faced danger for the sake of the greater cause of the gospel, and they did it together. Our final mention of them is in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 19. The churches of Asia greet you. Aquila and Priscilla greet you heartily in the Lord with the church that is in their house. And Rick, uh, in two of the verses we read, Priscilla was mentioned first. It shows how special she was to Paul and the other brethren with her. And, and that's no accident. You see this incredible working, this incredible union to serve God. And never are Aquila and Priscilla mentioned in Scripture without one another. What a beautiful testimony. What an inspiration for us to look at and to say, when I grow up, I want to be like that. So again, finally, last time, what do I think when I listen to my spouse? 
now that we've seen all of these scriptures, and now that we've seen the graciousness of this wonderful example, our final principle of caring and committed communication. When struggling to communicate with my spouse, let me pause and consider the what and how of my communication. Rephrase my words and embrace my spouse's value to me. Let me strive to love them on all levels and seek examples of true Christian marriages to inspire me to truly cling to my life partner through all experiences and at all costs. There is much here for us to focus on, much here for us to learn from. Folks, the bottom line is this. When we ask the question, what do I say when I talk to my spouse? We really have a choice. Hopefully what I say when I talk to my spouse is that I bless them with every word that comes out of my mouth, even if I'm upset. I can do that. I can choose to do that because I can choose choose to apply God's grace. What do I say when I talk to my spouse? Let me speak with the words that are inspired by the scriptural principles we've talked about, and let me bless them with all of my words and all of my actions, and therefore serve God in such a way that I wasn't before. We can do this. We just need to choose. Talk to your spouse with love and cherishing and honor and respect and see what happens in your life. Think about it. Folks, listen, we really do want to hear from you. Give us your feedback or send us your questions on this episode and other episodes at ChristianQuestions.com. Also, a big part of spreading the word about our podcast is subscribing to Christian Questions, your favorite podcast channel, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Podbean, iHeartRadio, Google Podcasts. Wherever you get your podcasts, please rate us and review us. We greatly appreciate it. Coming up next week, should Christians be practicing the laying on of hands? Is that something we should do today? Well, we'll talk to you next week.